Welcome to ASME TechCast, bringing you the innovators, the innovations, and the issues that push the envelope of engineering. I'm Jeffrey Winters, Editor-in-Chief of Mechanical Engineering Magazine, and I'm here today in ASME's virtual editorial bullpen with the other editors to talk about our top engineering stories of 2023. Let me go around the room and introduce everyone. Um, We have Senior Editor John Kosowatz. How do you do today? Uh, Not so bad. and then um, senior editor Louise Boyer. Hey Jeff, glad to be here. Glad you glad you could make it. And membership content program manager Kathy Chichari. Hey, how you doing? Nice to uh, be here. I think the program massacre would have been kind of interesting to have in there. But anyway, we will each take a turn talking about a story we published this year that spoke to the moment that we're in here in 2023, whether it's describing a hopeful piece of technology that shows off humanity at its best, or an engineering marvel that helps us at us at our worst, or just a limit that humanity is facing and that engineers are perhaps the best suited to overcome. Let me set the stage by saying that this year seems like the first in a while that was uh, was kind of sort of normal. 2020 was, of course, defined by the pandemic. 2021 was dominated by attempts at recovery. And 2022 was dealing with the dislocation, inflation, and supply chain hiccups that stemmed from the re- that recovering. Not that everything in the world is great this year, but the bad stuff was awful in a fairly ordinary way. So unless you owned a lot of cryptocurrency. But Let's leave the awful stuff aside for a bit and talk about humanity at its best. Um, Louise, I understand that your top story of the year sees the universe in a whole new light. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was thinking about which stories from the past year really showcased um, engineering ingenuity, the the James Webb Telescope feature from the October-November issue immediately came to mind. Um, One of my favorite things about this story is that it really gives you a sense of how much amazing engineering went into bringing this telescope from its initial concept all the way out to its final position in space, about a million miles away from Earth. Um, You know, a key part of the whole endeavor was the primary mirror. You know, the larger the mirror, the more light the telescope collects and the more detailed images it can generate. So Webb's primary mirror is made of beryllium, which has a strength to density ratio four times better than steel, aluminum, or titanium. And it's also coated in a very thin layer of gold, allowing the mirrors to reflect about 99% of infrared light. And this mirror is also huge. You know, it's 21 feet across. It's made of 18 different segments. Each one's about four feet in diameter by itself. And they not only had to fold up to fit within the launch vehicle, but they also had to unfold entirely on their own and align properly with no fail safes. Um, You know, that's because of the the hefty $10 billion price tag made it so NASA engineers couldn't even include standard backup or redundancy features um, that you might typically see on space equipment. Um, So I think there were something like 300 single points of potential failure, and there was no way to fix anything after the launch. Um, So, so many things could have gone wrong, but they didn't. Um, You know, half an hour after launch, the telescope system successfully connected to the space telescope 
Space, Space Telescope Science Institute. Um, and then about six days into, into the journey, there's this huge um, five-layer parasol made out of captain, um, about the size of a tennis court that unfurled to, to actually protect the telescope from the sun's heat. Um, you know, day 10, the, the secondary mirror extended. And then on days 12 and 13 is when those uh, 18 segments actually unfolded. Um, you know, each one was controlled by cryogenic actuators that could function in the extreme cold of space while also being adjustable at both the centimeter scale and the nanometer scale. And, you know, that's just a snapshot of the, the many amazing feats discussed in this story. And, um, you know, even though this telescope's only been in space for about two years, NASA's already working on the next one. Um, you know, Webb took 10 years, $10 billion makes you wonder how long it'll take and how much it'll cost to realize the next space telescope. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, you know, astronomers, they get these amazing images from, from, from the web or previously from Hubble. And the astronomers are, are talking about and, and they're the stars of the show. But, you know, the real heroes behind all this are the, are the engineers who who made these telescopes possible. Without that, these guys would be, I don't know, holding up blank sheets of paper and telling us that that's where the, you know, the star is. So, um, I yeah, I, I agree with you, Louise, uh, um, that that article written written by, you know, friend of the magazine, Lena Zeldovich, is a real keeper. So the flip side of the hopeful triumph of the Webb telescope team is the application of some of the most cutting-edge technology to help prosecute one of the most brutal wars in recent decades. John, what can you tell us about war drones? Well, given the state of the world, the uh, cover story in the August-September issue on drones and, and how they're changing how wars are fought was, was really pertinent and spot on. Uh, the war in Ukraine has been dragging on for, what, two years now or so? And the resilience of Ukrainians in, in defending and then taking the fight to the Russians depended not only on a better and well-trained army and officer corps, but also on technology. And a lot of that technology is in drones. Drones um, have been a popular topic uh, among readers of the magazine and ASME.org over the past few years as they've gotten smaller and faster. You'll remember the piece from a few years back on the on the drone racing circuit. Mm. And there, of course, have been other applications in agriculture and, and construction, just to name two. Mark Wolverton wrote the piece for ME Magazine, and he did he did a fine job in illustrating how drones now are being applied to the battlefield. And and these are not the larger ones that show up periodically in newscasts, like the Reaper or Global Hawk that are piloted by an operator sitting at a computer hundreds of miles away or even thousands of miles away. Um, the Ukrainians and, and now the Russians also are using small hobby-type drones for surveillance, for artillery spotting, and even attacks by fitting them with grenades or small explosives that can be, that can be precisely dropped on a target by their operators um, who were just a few miles away on the front lines. They were first weaponized um, a little earlier by the Azerbaijanis during the short war between Azerbaijan and Armenia, which was a conflict barely anyone noticed. Uh, Wilburton, uh, speaking with a senior defense policy analyst at RAND Corporation, pointed, pointed out that they set precedents with uh, set the precedent with inexpensive drones, surveillance, and long-range strike weapons. 
Um, drones are certainly utilitarian and they're cheap and easily replaceable. Uh, unlike the expensive aircraft and armored weaponry, um, not to mention the personnel operating them. So as the technology advances, new capabilities and tactics are going to be used, and it, it begins to raise new questions also about investing money in traditional and expensive weapon systems like battle tanks and aircraft carriers. Um, so they're, um, they're making their mark um, in, uh, in the world of warfare. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's um... I mean, nobody likes um, to see see the the sort of fighting and 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 killing going on over there. Uh, but it is, you know, fascinating to see just how different the war in in Ukraine is from from the wars in you know Iraq, um, you know, twenty years ago or you know decades prior. I mean, it's it really feels like we're getting a glimpse of the future there. Yes, and it 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 shows you how. Um, technology can be applied in a completely different manner. Um, hobby drones have been around for more than a few years now, and and you know they're the um, they're the subject of, of backyard uh, um, backyard play and 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 also use you know real, realtors use them a lot to you know take shots of uh, of properties, and now they're being applied in a completely different manner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, now, Kathy, I, I, I think you've got something a little bit more uplifting for us. Um, I mean, we've all heard about how the internal combustion engine is imperiled by efforts to electrify cars and trucks and buses and bulldozers and mm -hmm. excavators. But <laughs> you have a story about um, giving diesel engines a, a green makeover. Um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so many people look at the attention that electrifying transportation gets and and they're concluding and you know that the industry is not looking at any alternatives but that's not, that's just not true. Along these lines people may assume that the internal combustion engine, you know, that machine that does most of the big hauling, the big moving, the you know the farming in the world is being abandoned. So I thought that one popular article was very good in 2023 that, that made the case from the negatives that come to the internal combustion engine is more from not the engine itself, not that design, but the diesel fossil fuel that the machine uses. So refueling the engine from um, both the magazine that was online, and it was very popular online as well, tells the story of Clear Flame Engine Technologies. They're in Geneva, Illinois. So they're looking at um, the solution. It, um, the story was an adaptation of a presentation at, at an ASME conference, um, as a matter of fact, and it outlines component level changes to the engine. And it allows for retrofitting, you know, it, new engines, but also retrofitting all those existing vehicles that are out there. So the solution of a fuel adaptable engine is one that is low cost and it's low carbon. And also it doesn't put those quarter of a million diesel mechanics out of work across the country. And also, moreover, it um, it allows for the um, minor changes to traditional parts. So, you know, uh, we can leverage existing supply chains. And I could go on and on um, why the thing, you know, it's it's a really good alternative. But let me concentrate on one um, benefit that maybe not everybody thinks about, and it's flexibility. 
It's amazing. They, they got this engine to ignite on a wide range of fuels. So not just petroleum-derived fuels or even fuels that were, you know, um, that required to be chemically similar to diesel because there's a lot of that going on too. Clear, clear flame um, engine can run back-to-back days, one day on ethanol, one day on methanol, one on E8, um, E85. So um, they actually offered the example of retrofitting. They did four diesel trucks and also one genset um, generator. So that operated on alcohol fuel, and they drove it through, you know, demanding road tests, things that they have to do every day. They had they regularly pulled 80-pound gross vehicle weight. Those are those big, big trucks. And the vehicle has a range. The vehicles have a range of over 1,000 miles. And for liquid fuels like alcohols, those various alcohols, you could see, you could imagine that they, um, the refueling infrastructure can get be part of, um, you know, the fleet that that's already there, the infrastructure that's already there. Um, I know that a, a lot of this stuff is already there um, and can be done. So many engineers um, welcome a low cost and simple um, solution. And, you know, that doesn't take away, you know, the diesel engine and, and you know, but it frees it from petroleum dependency. Um, this, they think, uh, will enable the internal combustion engine to lead the way in the near term when it comes to decarbonization. And while we're getting up to scale, and it can still dominate the heavy-duty applications that need to be done. So um, I, I think many of the – and she made the point that engineers look at the solution as a complement to electrification, and that will allow the overall rate of decarbonization to be to become a reality faster, and we could accomplish this goal quicker um, rather than just relying on a single technology. Yeah. I mean, and and you're right. This That's a, that's a, a great article. And, and one of my favorite things about it mm -hmm. was that it was um, authored by – the chief technology officer at at Clearflame, um, Julie Bloomwriter, who, um, PhD, um, you know, engineer and um, really smart cookie, and, and I mean, I think it's like great to get that that firsthand account of how she and her team went in and and uh, and created this really interesting technology. I loved it. It was a good. It was a good article. Yeah. Well. Finally, my top, my pick for a top story, which is not exactly my favorite story, let me tell you, is 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 the problem that the electric vehicle industry and the renewable energy sector is having in in meeting its their lofty expectations. Um, basically, um, it's a question of getting the lines on the charts and the projections and the policy plans to line up with the reality of building actual you know goods. We all know that there's a huge push to produce what's been called the energy transition, which is phasing out of fossil fuel power plants and vehicles and replacing them with alternatives that don't produce greenhouse gas emissions. There are national level and state level plans that, that call for eliminating the sale of gasoline powered cars and trucks by the end of the next decade and shuttering every coal and, or natural gas fueled power plant even sooner. 
And obviously, if you look at the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and how that translates to global warming, those timelines, well, they make sense from that point of view. But but the problem is that there needs to be a substitute for all those cars and power plants, and those substitutes need to be built. And this past year, there's been a reckoning that building replacements on the scale and over the time that that need to be done is increasingly difficult. Um, here in the Northeast United States, for instance, the Danish wind turbine manufacturer Orsted walked away from plans to build two wind farms off the coast of New Jersey. And the and wind farms off the coast of New York State may also be canceled. And this is due to the steeply rising construction costs. Um, and the supply, supply side bottlenecks have impacted automakers who were hoping to build electric vehicles at an even faster pace than they're doing already. Um, so we we got into that story um, in the December January issue of Mechanical Engineering Magazine, and and on on December one on uh, ASME.org, we we invited um, noted energy expert Vaslav Smil to explore this topic. He's famous for running the numbers on on these sorts of plans, and when he looked at building out replacements for the carbon based power systems, he he spotted well well some challenges. Um, for example, by his estimates, to build enough wind turbines to replace just two-thirds of the coal and gas power plants in the world, that would require some three billion tons of concrete and 1.2 tons of a billion tons of metal, most of which would be steel. And uh, I don't have to tell you, that's a lot. Um, roughly the similar to the annual global production for those commodities. So building at that scale spread out over the next 10 years means turning a large fraction of the concrete and steel industry to, to the energy transition. Um, and there was the same sort of issue he found with, with the electric vehicles. Uh, Smill's message wasn't that the energy transition is impossible, but that engineering that the engineering community needs to be engaged with developing new solutions. He wrote, um, tackling these material challenges requires a focus from engineers to develop more efficient processes, uh, new machines that require fewer or different materials, or, or perhaps different materials. However, while good engineering can lessen the degree of material constraints, they can't erase them completely. So, I mean, it's it's... On the one hand, it's a, it's a big challenge, but one thing that, that, that I come back to always is that engineers are problem solvers and they're, this is what they're good at. And I, I have confidence that they're going to be able to, to meet this, although I have to say I don't entirely know how. And with that, we're, those are our top four stories of 2023. Um, to all you out in podcast land, Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to ASME TechCast on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever other podcast platform you prefer. Until next time, this is Jeffrey Winters, Editor-in-Chief of Mechanical Engineering Magazine. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks.